Welcome back. I, we're very excited about today's episode because we did something a little different. Uh, Rifka, you had told me about two women that you're very inspired by. Women you know, do you want to share who they are and why you found them inspiring? We were discussing that Rosh Hashanah is approaching and we were talking about renewal and trusting the timing of our lives. And these two women have renewed themselves and uh, taken on two very different roles, but very big roles. At a later stage in life, they're still very young, in my opinion. <laughs> we have my aunt, Shaney, new from Melbourne, Australia, who is in her 50s and is now studying law. And she's been on a journey and done many other amazing, inspiring things before that. But this is something new that she has taken on. And we have Rifki Kaplan, who is a friend of mine in in Israel, and she has recently become a Yoetzet, which you will hear about in our episode, in her 40s. And she has also been on a journey and done many other amazing things along the way, but she has chosen to do this now. And um, I thought they're both, to me, they are both very inspirational women, and a lot of people look up to them, including myself, for advice, guidance, because of who they are today, not only because of the growth that they have achieved within themselves, but because they give to others. They give to others individually, they give to the community. And this is something that both Ida and I look up to. And it just was so awesome and special to be able to share these two women with you, Ida, because of how much I value our friendship and you as well and what we learn from each other. Thank you, Rivka. And of course, I feel the same way. I've learned so much from you. I think we've learned a lot from each other. And I think you and I learned a lot from these two incredible women. You know, we put limitations on ourselves in terms of like when we should do something. Like when does it make sense to start a career? When does it make sense to go back to school? And I think they prove that there really is nothing that can get in your way if you commit to doing something. Whether you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, well into your 80s, or even in your 90s, like Dr. Edith Eager, you know, she wrote her first novel in her 90s. So I think there's so much to be said about trusting the timing of your life, about being open to opportunities that come your way, no matter what your preconceived notions are, whatever, no matter what society might say about your age or your abilities or any voices that are in your head preventing you from doing what you really truly want to do. I think you'll hear this episode and get inspired to take on something new or something that's been holding you back that you weren't sure about or that you are passionate about, but you weren't sure if it's possible if you could actually push forward and do it. And, you know, Rifki Zayo Edset, my aunt, Jane you is studying law. It doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be studying. It can be anything that you feel within you that you have the potential to give to the world. So here we have Janie New and Rifki Kaplan, who also are mothers of large families. They're multi-role women, and we're really excited to share this episode with you. Hi, I'm Rifka. And I'm Ida. Welcome to the From the Inside Out podcast. We're entrepreneurs and friends who love connecting through meaningful conversations. It all started in an Uber, where we were both so inspired by each other's life experiences. It was then and there that we decided to create this platform because we believe in the power of self-awareness and connection through sharing our experiences. Our goal is to bring you insights, 
wisdom from the people who inspire us, and interviews with some of our world's greatest thinkers, leaders, and everyday heroes. We invite you to join us as we create positive change in mind, body, and soul from the inside out. Hi, ladies. There we go. Hello. Hi. Buddy. How are you? Nice to see you. And you. This is exciting. This is our first time having two special guests. We're on all different time zones. It's 11 o'clock at night in Australia. It's four o'clock in the afternoon in Israel. And it's nine o'clock in the morning here. <laughs> That's right. How fun is that? See, I'm impressed. I don't think I could look like that at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> oh, you know what? A little bit of lipstick goes a long way. <laughs> right? Well, we're, we're bringing time together. Exactly. We're making it the infinite. world a little bit smaller. So very excited to have you here. And this is, like Ida said, this is our first time having two phenomenal women um, being interviewed together. Uh, so this is going to be a dynamite interview, please God. Um, no pressure, that. Rizky, no pressure. <laughs> no. I know, seriously, right? Yeah. No, no aiming, pressure at aiming all. for dynamite. <laughs> because because I personally know these two women are dynamite. So you just be you. You just do you. But um, our episode today is about renewal, change, and trusting in the time of your life. I'll ask my aunt, Shaney, my aunt and friend, Shaney, new to go first. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners and share the new role you have taken on in your life? Well, first I'll say thank you, Rivka and Ida, for having me on. And we've all come a long way from meeting up in Miami when you were both about to launch Inside Out. And, and oh, wow. Are. It was, yes. I, I met my aunt who was visiting Miami and we had a little coffee and I said, I'm actually going to start a podcast. I was so embarrassed to even say it. <laughs> um, because I thought it was I so amazing. <laughs> because I didn't know what amazing. was going to be. And I said, yeah. come in and meet and meet Ida. And so... That's, here we are. Yeah, that's how we met. So, yeah, we've all come a long way, and it's really beautiful to see. And I'm very proud of my niece and her dear friend, and it's just very awe-inspiring. So, I'll introduce myself. I'm Shaney New. I live in Melbourne, Australia. And about a year and a half ago, I applied to law school. And a very short time later, I found myself sitting in class discussing the Australian legal system. But the reality is that it was not a new role. It's really the next step in a journey that began just about over 20 years ago from being an advocate for victims and survivors of family violence and sexual assault to studying law. And that's how I find myself doing this really amazing next step in my journey. And I just wanted you to share what is most inspiring is your age. I, when I started, I was just about onto 54. It was about a year and a half ago, and now I'm 55. And yeah, it, it is confusing because if we do share a picture, you don't look your age either. So, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, Rifki, can you share with us your new wow. role? And yes, wow. <laughs> it is wow. It is wow. And it's also exciting. And it's also like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And now I know uh, that I could do something else, you know? <laughs> so yeah. Um, so thanks for having me. This is, uh, I listen to you ladies regularly. 
I'm really bad about leaving a formal review. Instead, I'll just WhatsApp Rifka my enthusiasm. So <laughs> you'll have to forgive me. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. And Shani, I was telling Rifka that the first time I heard you speak, my impression was, what a lady. So if you're going to wow the jury the way you wowed us, you got the meeting out of your palms. So um, I'm Rifki Kaplan, and I live in Sfat, Israel. I have Baruch Hashem, what I call a minion of children, or more like a egalitarian minion of children. So, and my new, I guess, most exciting part is that I'm also a bubby. So I have a granddaughter, Baruch Hashem. And um, I'm here on Shlichus in Tzfat together with my husband, Chaim, um, which is a whole story in and of its own. But I just recently graduated, gosh, it's probably about six weeks ago or so, as a Yoetzet Halacha. So I think that's probably what you want me to be focusing on. And yeah, here we are. And could you share for, for listeners who don't know what that is, what is a Yoetzet Halacha? Okay, so literally translated as a Yoetzet Halacha is like a... Um, Halachic consultant, and I know that the course that I was a part of, it's a two and a half year program, intense slash grueling slash incredible, amazing, all everything I wanted and then more. And um, we, our focus was the laws of Tarat Mishpacha, a family purity. So, and we could go into this a little bit further, but really it's just so that you could have a woman that you can speak to who can help and guide you in these intricate slash intimate areas of your life, um, you know, at any point. Yeah, I actually know a few Yoatzot. I've heard about how grueling and how hard it is. Not to mention, like, even to, to begin the process, there's a, a criteria that you need to meet to even get into this program. And what's really amazing about both of you is that you have a lot on your plate, right? You've got a lot going on, yet you make this decision to take on something, right? This very big new responsibility that's going to take up a lot of time and energy. So I, I, I'd love for you to share, you know, why now or why, why did you choose it at that point? And what, what was it within you that gave you that courage to take that step? So Shani, you can... So I would need to take a step back. And if I had to identify one factor that was the impetus to enroll in law school now is that injustice just outrages me. And it all started when I was in my mid-30s and I was president of my children's parent association. I was very involved in the community already. I thought that I had a good understanding of social issues. And one day, I was probably running from one meeting to another, and I met Mrs. Chava Gurevich. And as Rifka would know very well, Mrs. Gurevich is the former principal's wife. She's also my very dear friend's mother. And she says, you know, Shana, I'm a member of the Jewish Task Force Against Family Violence. And we have had awareness programs throughout the Jewish community, but we haven't done one yet in the Frum community because we're not quite sure how to approach it in a way that people would come. And so we decided, she said, that we would do a book review of Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky's book, The Shame Born in Silence. Would you be interested in doing the book review? And I remember that 
I was so shocked that I almost left at family violence in the Jewish community. How is that even, how's that even possible? But I didn't. It was Mrs. Gurevich. And <laughs> I said, you know, I'll read the book. Let me read the book and then I'll tell you what I think. And I did. And as I was reading one section of it, I actually felt the hair on the back of my neck starts to tingle. I had seen it. I had seen it, but I didn't know what it was because it wasn't in my frame of reference. And so I made the decision then that I was going to do the book review. We had no idea if anybody was going to come. And I have to say that it, the room was so full that there was standing room only. I gave the talk, which was based on Rabbi Tversky's book. And when it was over and people started to stand up and leave, there was a woman who remained seated and she was crying. And she says, this is the first time in 60 years that somebody has told my story. And from there, Rebetzin Rifka Groner approached me and she said, you know, Shani, would you consider turning the talk into an article for the Nishay Chabad newsletter, which, as you know, is a newsletter or a magazine that goes around the world. It has a very large audience, um, and it would be making quite a statement. You know, to have something like that written about for the first time was really going to raise eyebrows. Um, and so I was discussing it with my mother, and she was very thoughtful, and she said to me, something very unexpected. She said, you know, Shainala, I don't think you should do it. And I was so taken aback. And I said, mom, why not? And her response was, people are going to wonder why you know so much about it. Hmm. And it was that moment that made me realize that I had to do it. And I had to get involved because otherwise I would be one more person in a long line of people who said, no, it's too hard. It's too dark. I can't go there. And I explained to her why I could do it. I was married to a beautiful man. We had a beautiful relationship. And I knew straight away that he would be very supportive of it because he also had a very natural sense of justice. Um, and so I did turn it into an article and the letters to the editor just highlighted the, the, the reality that there were so many people in our community who were living with this terrible secret because family violence was not spoken about. Family violence was a stigma and it was time. It really was time to open or, or lift the blinds on this very difficult and real topic. So what then began to happen was that we, as members of the Jewish task force, would speak about family violence. We would be creating awareness and encouraging victims to break their silence, to seek support, because everyone deserves to live with respect and in safety. And very soon, victims and survivors of family violence did start to reach out, and they were reaching out to the members that they knew. And as a result of that, many members of the Frum community would reach out to me, and I understood that every word that I said was going to be significant as to whether or not 
that woman, and I say woman because it does happen to both men and women, but the majority of victims are women. And I knew that if I had to choose my words so carefully to ensure that she is able to seek further support. And as a result of that, I attained a degree in counseling. As you can imagine, many legal and halachic issues came up. And I have a very good positive working relationship with a number of Rabbanim and a good understanding of halacha, but very little knowledge of family law. And I realized that if I wanted to provide real choice to those experiencing abuse, I had to have a better understanding of the court process from the perspective of a woman and indeed a frum woman. And so here we are. So I do have to say it wasn't really a change as much as it was a natural progression. Just amazing. Wow. We have to unpack that a little bit more, but first let's hear, <laughs> I'd love to hear from Ripley on how, on where the courage came from and, and why did you choose this particular thing when you chose it? I really just want to speak about shaming today. <laughs> <laughs> but um how did I, how did my journey start? Yeah. Also, it wasn't just out of nowhere, but I do remember a particular moment, like when the seed was planted. So about 14 years ago, um, I moved down with my family to Shalayim because I was just, I wanted to be on the other side of the desk. You know, I'm a teacher um, and I just wanted to be a student. I just much rather be a student. So I moved down to Yushalayim with my family and um, I went to school for about a month um, at Nishmat, which was a program that was offering like advanced studies for, for women. And I remember, you know, watching day after day, these women sitting in the Beth Medrash, many of them with babies in their laps, hours after hours, just studying with like the primary sources, just like piling around them, Gemara, Mishnah, Shulchan Aruch, the Roshonim. And like, by the time the evening was, you know, coming, they had just piles around them. And like every day I just was more fascinated and frankly, more envious of what these women were doing. So finally, I got, you know, the guts up to ask them. And uh, they told me that they were basically prepping for their exam, you know, to qualify as you assault. Um, and they told me a little bit about what involved. And I just remember that moment thinking to myself, I'm doing this. You know, I also knew that I couldn't do it right then. Um, but I like filed it away in like one day this is going to happen. And and with time, I also began to realize that it wasn't just something that I wanted, but it really was a need. Baruch Hashem, I have the opportunity to teach literally hundreds and hundreds of seminary students every year, many of them, you know, going on to start marriages, relationships. Plus, of course, we have a very, you know, uh, rapidly growing community here in Spot, particularly the Anglo community that I'm very connected with. And through the many, many conversations that I had, I realized that Women need women, you know, having been there, done that, there's just a way that they could explain something. It could be the exact same thing that the Rav explained to them, but coming from another woman, it's something that they're able to hold on to. It's something that they're able to understand. So as time passed, I realized that this is this wasn't just something that I wanted. This was something that was really needed. I also have to say that I'm very blessed in the sense that I love learning. I really do. I just absolutely love learning. And I... And so I knew that if one day I would do this, the, the way in which I could kind of like justify the amount of time that I would have to invest and the other things that I would be forced to put on hold was because 
I, it would be immediately filling a need. It wasn't that, you know, when I get my degree, how many years later, at that point, I can start. But I knew that the moment I would start learning the skills that I would be gaining and the information that I would have, I was Baruch Hashem, almost like immediately able to apply them. So when the time came, and in my mind, it was sort of like when my baby goes to Ghan, I didn't know when that would be, you know, I didn't know at what point he would be the baby. But when, it, you know, when he became the baby, I said it was time. And so I started the process. Um, and Ida, you heard accurately, <laughs> it's a grueling <laughs> um, application process. And to be fully honest, um, initially, I was rejected, which, uh, which was really a good thing. You know, in the bigger picture of things, it was good. At first, I was like, kind of like saying, part of me was like almost relieved. I said, you know what? You tried, you did your best. It's not for you. It's not meant to be. Like, I remember it was like a Thursday night and part of me was like kind of relieved. And I still remember my husband looking at me like, funny, like you're not going to do anything about it, Rifki? Like, really? Like, you're just going to accept it? And I was just <laughs> kind of processing it. And the next morning, I remember like waking up like a lie and thinking, no, this has to happen, you know? But before I like called them back and we spoke it through, et cetera, it also like really brought me to my knees in the sense, like I really had to ask myself, like, why am I doing this? Like, why is this so important to me? Like I had to really understand like why I was willing to do something that would involve so much time, so much effort, something different. I would get a lot of pushback, you know, a lot of, you know, quizzical looks, et cetera. Like, why was this so important? And I had gone through that process before I had applied, but being rejected forced me to go through that process again, you know, and really clarify for myself why it was important and what I thought I could do um, with this information. So ultimately, I was able to convince them that even though I was sorely lacking um, in the certain skills department, i.e., I couldn't read a Gemara on my own properly. Thank God for the Schattenstein edition. You know, you could send my thanks. <laughs> but, but I do feel that, and I was able to convince them that I was bringing something to the table that was unique, you know, um, coming from the Chabad world and coming from the life experience that I had and the fact that I was so actively involved in this as is, I was, you know, I was able to convince them that it was a good trade-off. And Baruch Hashem, they accepted that. And, you know, and there we were. So can I add that, Rifki, you are the future of the Jewish world, because as women take on the, the course of study that you're doing, Yiddishkeit is going to be seen through the eyes of women. And so I say, watch this space. You know, you are forming a new world. Shani, for generations, it's been mother to daughter, mother to daughter. And then things shifted, you know, and I don't know if we willingly relinquished it, but I don't. Yes, I think it's the way of the future, but I also think it's bringing us back to the way it was meant to be. Yeah, beautiful thought. On that note, on, on going back in time, how do you both feel that you are different now from when you were 25? If you were doing the same thing then, how do you feel you would be different? Shani, do you want to go first? Okay. Well, I have to say that at 25, I was on familiar ground, you know, as Chabad girls and women, it was ingrained in us that we could tackle just about anything. 
it was at 32 that I really needed to dig deep and find the courage to take on a very different role. So in retrospect, that was the turning point for me. I think I was much braver then at 32 than I am now by taking on and really confronting the issues, including family violence, sexual assault, aguna. You know, these were not issues I was aware of growing up, which is why I felt the need to help put them on the community agenda. And this was at a time when very few people were prepared to talk about them or even acknowledge that they exist. So I think for me, it was a matter of timing. It was a matter of believing that we could do anything. Um, That was something that the Rebbe instilled in us, and we internalized that. Um, And we just made things happen and figured it all out just along the way. You had actually said something to me uh, when we were talking recently about how you're studying law now that you feel that the experience that you've had in life is very different from the younger women or the younger men that are studying law with you and that all the ex- your life experience makes your writing and your exams and your conversations with your professors a lot different from those who are younger and haven't had the life experience that you have. That's very true. Um, I bring to the classes You know, let's say we're a classroom of 30, everybody brings something, but what I do bring is the experience of a woman who really has done, I think, important things, has seen um, the challenges that people go through and how we can support each other through really challenging times. um, And that's what makes community. So just, you know, understanding real life issues from a more mature perspective, I think is something that enables me to understand law. I, I always knew that I was interested in doing it. But what I never expected was how much I'm actually enjoying it, because it helps me put a world perspective in, into my understanding of how how and why things have played out in the past and how they continue to play out. So, you know, it, it's, it's a journey. It's a journey um, and one never stops learning. One never stops learning and one should never stop contributing. That, and I'm so happy that you mentioned like that you have a life experience and some perspective that maybe you wouldn't have had at, at, in your 20s. And I think at every stage in life, no matter what stage you're in, there's always going to be you know pros and cons, challenges that you're going to have to overcome and opportunities that you'll have. And so I think that should really encourage anyone at any age um, right. to feel that they could start something. And there's going to be pros and cons no matter what. By the way, that's an important point, Ida, because if someone does study law in their 20s, they're going to do something else in their 50s that's going to that's going to lead them. Or if they become a your etzet in their 20s or 30s, the next stage is going to bring something else and they'll have that life experience. So, Absolutely. yes, agreed. Yeah. Um, so the truth is, it was never even something I considered when I was 25. Um, you know, as the years progressed and I already had this dream, you know, and I was like, when is it going to happen? Something that like I really hold on to strongly is that dream big, be passionate, and simultaneous to that, create like a vessel for Hashem's brachas, and then hand the time frame over to God. 
Meaning, I mean, maybe some people would say that's called striking a bargain, you know, like, Abishar, I'm going to do what you want me to do. If now is the time that I should be focused on my children and this is, you know, 24 seven, this is what I need to be. I'm making my vessel, but just know that I have this dream. And so when you think, you know, my stars should align, kind of let me know. So once <laughs> this dream was planted, um, I was, I wasn't, in, I wasn't like anxious about it. Like, oh my gosh, is, how could it not? You know, I wasn't like another year passed. I wasn't concerned about that. And it was really, you know, I mean, the irony of it was that I was waiting for my my baby to go to Ghana, which he did. And then three months later, Corona hit. So everybody came back home. But like, that's a separate discussion. Um, but I think looking back at the 25-year-old me versus, you know, 20 years later, the 45-year-old me, I think I have a lot more um, patience for the, for just the, for life, for the process. Like you don't have to immediately problem solve. You have to just sometimes be present and listen. You know, I don't know that I could have done that 25 years ago, which is so critical. This is going to kind of sound ironic, but I think that I have a, a much bigger dose of humility, like just respect for not just halacha, because, you know, that kind of sounds like simplistic, but just for like the bigger picture of things, you know? Um, and I also think that I'm much more anchored in who I am. Had somebody like kind of approached me in an academic manner to argue me down, I don't know that I could have held my ground. And I don't know that I would have been confident enough walking away from the conversation that I was right. You know, even if I had held my ground, I wondered if I would be left with more questions than answers. And I sort of feel like very blessed coming into this at this age because I was studying a non-Chabad program um, and it's incredible. And I have the greatest, you know, respect and like gratitude for, for what I received. Um, but it was very different. It was very different studying halacha, studying Torah in a non-Chabad environment. And it really shook me up a lot, you know, and it, I mean, some point it left me crying. Sometimes I turned to my husband and I said, I just can't do it anymore. It's just too different. And he just says, you can and you will, you know, and I went back in there and I and I think age and life experience gave me a real sense of anchor so that I'm confident in who I am and I'm confident as a Chabad woman. And from that place of confidence, I recognize that I can open myself up and there's so many beautiful ways in which to serve Hashem. That, that are just as okay. Now, maybe not for me, but they're just as okay and they're just as beautiful, you know? Um, and wow. Rivka, I'll share this because I know that you knew my bubby, my bubby Kenny Darren. But when I was thinking about this notion of being anchored in who you are so securely that you can open yourself up to other ways of thinking, I suddenly had this flashback. I was thinking about on Shabbos a couple of weeks back and I suddenly had this flashback. My bubby was like, the most fiercely proud Chabad woman that I knew, you know, and her like extremely fashionable, just Jackie O kind of manner. Um, but don't mess with Chabad or Lubavitch around Bubby because that's just non-negotiable, you know. And yet at the same time, it was in her house that I saw my first Shamshin Rafal Hirsch set of Chumashim and my first Nechama Leibowitz set of Chumashim. And she would use them and she would share from them with her students. 
And I suddenly, and then I, I, I kind of grew up in that thinking that was normal. And then I went to many Chabad homes and didn't see that there, you know? And I realized that Bubby was so anchored in who she was, that she was so, it was so safe to explore other ways as well, because it wouldn't rattle her inside as a rabbit. It would enforce what she had. So I don't know that I could have done this and emerged as I did at 25, but at 45, it was like a Humpty Dumpty process. Like I fell apart and I had to be put back together with the tremendous support, you know, of my husband and my mashpia and my sisters and my family. But Baruch Hashem, I really feel connected with who I am. And from that place, able to explore and share further and respect, utter respect for those that are different than me. And that's totally okay. It's not going to shake me. So, so special that you have yeah. that same anchor as your grandmother. I'm, I'm honored to have known her. Yes, it's amazing. No, that's it's just so, that's so amazing. Yeah. yeah, you took this on, and then you realized, hey, that was my grandmother too. So it's also hard sometimes. I think that you know, for women who play so many roles, like it's so much. It's easier said than done. The closest thing I could find to like feeling anchored is um, to really have a why. And I think that you both shared a very solid why. There was a need that needed to be filled. And you were suited at that point to fill that void and to have the courage to take that leap. People who might not have that like solid, solid anchor, they might not know who they are. They're still exploring. You start discovering what is your why. There's a great book about that actually called Start With Why. And Viktor Frankl says, yes. yes. Yeah. So we and I were talking about, you know, the Viktor Frankl quote that one who a person who has a why can endure anyhow. Um, and this goes for many different kinds of situations. So now let's get to the how is how do you do it? Like what, what like practical tools, tips, what are the ways that you kind of, even if you take us through a day or um, just maybe a philosophy, like, how do you do it? Would you, uh, Shaney, sorry, Shaney, go ahead. Shaney, yes. <laughs> I didn't want to jump to you. Um, well, the why for me was probably the easiest to answer because I devote my time to things I really believe need to get done, and I'm in a position to help make it happen. So I have to prioritize, I have to be very organized, and be willing to put in the work, both in my private life as well as in my professional life. As for the how, this is actually fascinating to me, even as I'm living it completely unexpected. You know, I do have a lot on my plate. I have family responsibilities. I have community obligations. Um, and before I say anything else, I want to acknowledge the terrible loss suffered by so many people during this terrible time and many who continue to suffer. Um, and that cannot and must not be minimized. But strangely enough, for me, COVID lockdown has had a silver lining. You know, we have nowhere to go. We have no events, sadly, no celebrations. You know, that that has been very, very painful for our community. Young couples who have set wedding dates, young boys who had bar mitzvah celebrations planned that were all canceled. So, you know, I'm not, I would not underestimate the challenges and the difficulty that people have experienced in this very, very strange and yes, unprecedented times. But, you know, for me, all classes are held online. Suddenly I have all this unexpected time to devote to my studies. And I thought it was going to be 
such a concerted juggling act. But as I said, we live in very strange times and I actually have the time to focus on my studies. I, but I must say, I, I grew up in Australia and I watched you before these times and you were juggling a lot you, yeah. um, without these times. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, because I, all of that, I watched all the how the, happen. Yeah, all, all the balls in the air were very important to me. And so, you know, I wasn't willing to let any of them drop. And I worked really hard. I worked really hard to make sure that I was able to focus and just, you know, work towards those things that I felt were very significant to my family, my extended family, my community. And that's how I made it happen. Was there anything um, that you felt you could let go of? Sometimes you have to let go of something. Yeah. Yeah. There were times that I had to let go of social events that I probably would have enjoyed. But now I actually do make a very concerted effort to spend time with friends because they're so important to our lives. Um, so, you know, I, I would recommend that people do keep up those close friendships because, you know, they, they are the blessings in our lives. And, um, and now yes. you know, I'm much more, much more conscious of that. Ricky, you, do you, you want to share that you waited us? Till, Yeah, because you, yeah. you're at a different stage in your life. You said you wanted to right. wait until your son went to Ghana, your child went, your youngest went to Ghana before you started. So um, how, how did you do that? <laughs> and how, do, how did you and how do yeah. you? <laughs> and how do you, yeah. <laughs> so like I said, the irony of it is that my son went to Ghana and I was like, it was weird. Like for the first time I was home alone in probably like literally 21 years or something. It was like, it was almost eerie. But that was very short-lived. Um, and then a new reality hit, uh, which Shani described. Up until Corona hit, I was traveling to Shalayim once a week, uh, which I absolutely loved. But it also meant that I was leaving the house at 4.30 in the morning and coming home at like 10 o'clock at night. And so the day before I would be prepping for when I was gone and the day after I was doing catch-up. So the fact that I no longer had to do that much traveling was a big plus. Before I started the program, like once I was accepted till the program started, it was a good couple of months. So I basically, you know, sat down with my husband. Um, and once I had that conversation, I kind of confirmed it with my mashpia. And I realized like, you know, yes, we're all juggling a lot of balls. Some of them are glass and some of them are rubber. You know, the glass ones you can never lose sight of, but the rubber ones can bounce down and you'll pick them back up when you're ready. And I also knew that my investment of teach of learning would be immediately paid back in whatever I would have to put like on a lower fire at the moment, you know? So those I'd been teaching in a number of places. Some of them I had to unfortunately completely, you know, put on pause because they, it was at the same time that I would actually have to be in class. Some of them I had to cut back my hours. Um, Corona took care of, of releasing me of some of my duties as well. Even something as simple as PTA, which used to take a whole evening now took 15 minutes. Like I logged into zoom at my time and then I left, you know, it wasn't like, so a lot of that stuff, definitely. Um, I also became, I was always a morning person, but I also became a very, very early morning person. Cause it was the only time my house was quiet, you know? Um, I, and I loved it. And when I was from four 30 till my kids woke up, that was my time. And I got a tremendous amount done and nobody else's husband, you know, 
also guests. I mean, guests used to be a very big part of our lives. And like for literally almost a year, it wasn't even an option. So obviously that was like a lot less time and a lot less headache and a lot less stress, which like looking back, I think like Avish there, like you could have orchestrated this differently, but I am very grateful for those things. You know, I included included my children in the journey. You know, Um, we have like a very big calendar that I have in my kitchen that everybody writes down when they're having school trips, when they have orthodontic appointments, when they have a big test. So mommy stuff went on there as well. And my kids knew, like my, they, my kids knew when I was having a big task. My kids knew when I had to be in Yerushalayim. So they, I very much included them in the journey. And I also realized that, um, yeah, obviously things were going to have to be compromised, but I saw that as an investment. I thought to myself, like, if my girls see that this is important to me, you know, this is a gift that I'm giving them, right? So obviously suppers were simpler. And I also realized that, you know what? Kids like more simple suppers. The less time you spend on supper, the happier they honestly are. And it's this ridiculous narrative that we feed ourselves that we have to have this properly planned dinner when they're just as happy having, I don't know what, smoothies and granola. So we had a lot of those. We did a lot of pizza. And they loved it. They couldn't care less. I cared. But like, I was like, this is not <laughs> ridiculous, you know? Choose what's important. And um, and like I said, obviously, I was, I still, even though I was waking up crazy hours, obviously, there were times when I was less available. We had a lot of tests, a lot of schoolwork. Um, and like, I thought to myself, yes, you know, I am paying a price, so to speak. But I saw it as an investment because I really saw that I was, giving my girls, not even my girls, even my boys, my family, like, you know, like sort of like a a prototype of if you want to do something and it's important and it's going to be beneficial to your community and to so many other people and to yourself, then it's okay to do that. Like, I felt like I was, you know, giving them the green pass and trying to, like I said, the glass balls, we held on as tightly as possible. And the rubber balls, I'm starting to pick back up, you know? You know what I'm thinking as you're talking? You said that the the silver lining of Corona for you and guests, et cetera, but yet you took on other things because I know that you have now um, made a mikveh happen in Svart and you also have a gemach. And these are things that you've taken on as you became a yaretzet. So you may have let go of some things, but then you took on other things. You let go of something, but you took on something else. <laughs> no, it, it's kind of, it's funny, Rivka, because the whole mikvah thing is actually, I mean, the mikvah, we're renovating it. You know, we have, you've had this mikvah that's been around for a bunch of years. Um, and the renovation co- process, I had wanted to renovate. I started, I stopped, I got frustrated. Uh, like, And then a whole bunch of like young blood just like started this campaign going and um, I was happy to jump on board. And the timing of it wasn't lost on me. I really felt like it was a graduation gift from Hashem. It happened the last couple of months. And I sort of felt like the Abishter was saying, here, I'm giving this to you. You know, you just poured your heart and soul into these halachot. Here's your gift, you know? And so for me, it was like a no brainer. Of course, I'm going to reciprocate that. And then this gemach that you're talking about, which is, um, you know, we lend out any kind of everything and anything you need for a simcha. We had started it before Corona, but ironically, we were so busy during Corona because people were scaling down weddings. Whereas I had a chuppah, but I hardly ever lent it out. We were lending it out almost weekly. Because people were making backyard weddings and like, where were they supposed to get a chuppah from? I, we had like the candles for the chuppah. We, were, we didn't have enough of them to lend out. And like, we became the address for that. So you're, you're right. In that sense, it was kind of like strange how 
certain parts of my life, the ante, you know, was upped during Corona. Um, and then certain parts were definitely on pause. When you're doing it all, you're not doing it all, all of the time. You're prioritizing sometimes. I love that analogy, the glass jars, you know, the glass, the rubber. Sometimes you have to put things on the back burner so that you can do other things. Um, it doesn't mean that you're completely letting go of something, right? Like you didn't completely let go of the idea of becoming a set just because you had a little a baby at home, right? You knew that, okay, well, it's on the back burner temporarily. I can still do it. Let me just figure out how to manage. And what I think happens, and clearly just knowing you and meeting you, and I'm so inspired by by both of you, is that you build, it seems like you build energy reserves. On this yeah. the subject of energy yeah. reserve, yeah. it's one of these topics we're investigating to know, to understand what self-care is, what it means to the people we're inspired by. How do you understand the concept of self-care and what role does it play in your life, Auntie Shaney? So in a very interesting way, studying full stop or studying law is a form of self-care for me because it's something I very much wanted to do. So I was honoring that need or ambition or, or whatever, you know, term you want to give it. And I was looking after myself when I took that step to make it happen. Um, but yes, there are times that I feel overwhelmed. Uh, you know, assignments have to be handed in, exams have to be handed in. There are family commitments that can be overwhelming. And so when it comes to that point where I really need to ground myself with Melbourne still being in lockdown. So we're limited to a 5k radius. My, my go-to place is walking on the beach. We're very lucky. It's very close by. It's magnificent. And I feel very blessed every time I'm there. And I just marvel at its beauty. And it really does soothe my soul. So, wow, is that something new? Because I, I never did that with you. <laughs> no, no, it was but something that I, I discovered much more recently. Right. And now my, I, I, I just can't get over the fact that it's, it's five minutes in the car or a 20-minute walk. Um, and it took me many, many years of living here to discover how attainable that sense of peace and, you know, and, and godliness and beauty and serenity, it's, it's there and it's ours for the taking. Um, and I do try to avail myself to that gift as often as I can. And when you that's, come... That's really nice. When you're allowed back in... That's what we'll do. Okay, that's good because and it doesn't cost uh, my aunt. Doesn't cost yeah, it doesn't cost yeah. anything because my, my aunt and I, were, when I lived in Australia, were shopping partners, and that actually costed us something. But um, <laughs> what I want to say is, though, that you have always been an inspiration to me in your balance of working, um, giving to the community, raising a large family, and also always looking beautiful, taken care of. I never felt like, oh, my aunt is a, is a martyr, even though you were so busy and doing so many things and giving of yourself, I felt, and I still do today, I was always in, looked up to you in the way, you know, my aunt manages to give and to take care of herself and her family so beautifully. Thank you. Thank you, my darling. And what's so interesting is that you went from being an adorable little niece to being a beautiful young woman. And the next thing I knew we were friends. And that is very special to me. 
To me um, too. We, we sort of grew um, up together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm grateful, very grateful to have you in my life. Right back at you. And, and Rifki, can you told me you've been listening to this question of in our podcast with most of our uh, people that we interviewed and you wondered, hey, what does self-care mean to me? Right. Because like your, your typical definition of self-care doesn't really talk to me that much, you know, and this is fa. You can't even, you can't even get a manicure if you wanted one, you know what I mean? You have to like work hard to get a number, see if she's working. Then you show up, it doesn't even have any colors or like the place is dirty, you're, like not even worth it, you know? So like your typical definition of what self-care is going to be certainly doesn't apply here in spa. But all of a sudden, Rivka, I forgot to tell you this aha moment that I had this morning. And Shani, you totally touched on it. And I realized self-care for me really is anything that rejuvenates me, like emotionally or spiritually, you know? And like learning, that's exactly what it did for me. Like I, people used to always ask me, like, how do you do it? I said, I love it. I just love it, you know? And when I have the luxury of like losing myself in a subject, um, you know, for hours, if I have that luxury, I feel like that's part of self-care, you know? So um, actually, you know, you know, my sister Tzivi, so the two of us signed up for a course that's going to start right after the Chagim with the Bacheva Learning Center. It's going to be 8 p.m. for her and 6 a.m. for me. And I'm like so excited about this. Like, I can't wait for this to start, you know? And that for me is self-care. And actually, I was really excited with when I, when I realized, like, that's what it's about. Like, I don't have to define myself by other people's self-care, you know? Um, having said that it's true. I would ideally, I would love to get to a place where I recognize that doing something for myself is not, I'm not shortchanging somebody else. It's just as important as the rest of the, the list. You know, it's so easy. I have a tendency, like if I, I like to work out and I like to eat healthy, et cetera. But if I'm running short on time, the first thing that's going to go is what I need to do for myself. So I think the healthy perspective on self-care is recognizing that's just as important. And also, like I said, anything that's going to rejuvenate me spiritually or physically yeah. is in that category for me. But self-care for me might not be self-care for you. And I think right. that when we pay so much attention to societal definitions of self-care, you know, of what it means to take care of yourself, then we can get very lost because it can be totally different for two people. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the way people generally look at self-care was going, th I went through a stage where I was just doing that, that I realized that didn't fuel me and it wasn't self-care to me. Like you say, like the self-care is what, what is it that actually fuels you and makes you feel alive at the end of the day? Yeah. And manicures are actually illegal currently in Melbourne. So that's not an option. <laughs> well, there we go. Yeah, it's a great shady. So someone's doing them. You're doing them nicely yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Shaney's nails always look amazing. <laughs> oh, notice, notice I'm keeping my hands down. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's um, great. Yeah. Last episode, my nails look good. I'm not showing mine right now. <laughs> um, so we've discussed your work, your roles now, self-care, what that means to you. And now I, we just want to touch upon motherhood. Do you experience mother's guilt at all? And if so, how do you get through it within you, both of you being these multi-role women? Let's start with Rifki because Shaming. I think Rifki, you're, you're, uh, you're kind of knee deep in how old is your youngest right now? My baby's five and a half now. Yeah. Okay. 
And your um, oldest is married. My yeah, for Hashem, she's married with a baby of her own. And um, we're so blessed that she's close by. And so they're over a lot as well. My kids are very helpful. And we, I delegate, but I make like, the delegation very clear, like what your responsibilities are. And we're going to do this together. I, I really tried all along, including them and why this was important important to me and not overwhelming them with my choices, but recognizing, you know, if I needed to take on more help, I needed to take on more help. Obviously, you know, they pulled their weight as much as they could, but I couldn't allow it to become their issue. And I also reminded myself, like, hopefully I'm setting an example for what they can do, you know, one day. So when the mommy guilt piped up, I just kind of reminded myself, you know, this is a choice you made and it's a good choice. And I have to tell you, like, there were times when I um, I expressed to my kids at one point and my older kids, I said, you know what? It was like, I was like halfway through and I said, you know what? Maybe I had my fun and I'm done. It's just, it's so hard. I just, I don't know if I could do this for another year. Like, and they looked at me and they're like, ma, you're not quitting. You're not quitting. You're going to do your best. And that's good enough. And it was such a sweet moment because they were spitting back on me what I always tell them, like, do your best. I have this little like jingle I do with them. Do your best. That's all I ask. Nothing more, nothing less, you know? So like the way they like, they held me up. They're like, and then I realized I was like, you know what? They're proud of me. And that meant a tremendous amount. So was everything perfect? No, not at all, you know? (laughs) But overall, I tried to have my hand on the pulse and like, keep, keep a happy home. That's what was important to me. Keep a happy home throughout all of this. Yeah. And with every decision that you make, I think, as especially as a mom, you know, with kids, every decision kind of carries some level of risk, right? So am I going to do this and maybe not be with my kids as much? Or am I not going to do this, but then risk feeling like, oh, I should have done it. Um, this is actually a quote from Edith Eager when we interviewed her, the author of The Choice. She said, kids don't do what we say, they do what we do. And the question I, I ask myself when I, you know, when I do have mom guilt, and I think most moms probably experience mom guilt, is what would I want my children to do? If they were in my shoes, you know, would I want them to give up something that's important to them or would I want, would I encourage them to do it? Um, obviously for the right reasons. And after maybe seeking counsel with a, with a, a mashpia. Um, and I, I feel like even the decisions that I've made to go back to school and to do all of this, I think that my, I hope, I don't want to say, I think I hope that my kids would do the same thing and, you know, try to be as present as possible to have their priorities straight and to always ask right. questions and, seek out mentorship. And I think that that's a very wise way to, to look at mom guilt and the role it plays in our lives. Yeah. What about you, Shaney? You know, when it comes to my children, there were two stages in my life. It was when they were younger and the majority of them lived at home. And now that they're all older, my youngest is 17. And so, you know, it's not really that much of an issue, but even when the older group of kids were going through their young years. I don't think it was an issue. I think they were very proud of the work that my husband and I did in the community. And it almost became like a family event because there was always a buzz in the house. We had all kinds of events um, happening on a consistent basis. My mother's favorite story was when, you know, she was watching all of this play out and one of my daughters walked over to the fridge and opened up and she saw a few, we call a punnets here, I don't even remember what we call it in New York, of strawberries. And she looked over and she goes, oh, mom, is this for us or are we having an event tonight? And my mother thought it was the cutest thing that she stopped and she thought, you know, both were important. Uh, but if it was for an event, then, you know, she was going to make sure that, you know, they remained and used 
um, for what I had actually purchased them for, which makes me wonder if I didn't buy enough strawberries for everybody. But (laughs) (laughs) And then, then, you know, um, a colleague of mine and I co-produced a book for Rabonim on how to respond to family violence. And that won an Australian award, um, you know, and they were so proud of that. So I think in retrospect, there was more more pride in their parents' efforts and achievements. Um, And I'm hoping that they didn't feel in any way that, you know, they they were provided with less parent time. Uh, well, that's not the way I remember it anyway. I, you know, I remember the, the buzz and the energy in the house when they were growing yeah. up. And, and guess what? I remember that buzz and energy in your house too. And what your strawberry story is reminding me, I just did a parenting course with Rabbi Chase Taub. It's actually happening again, if anyone's interested. But something that stood out to me in one of the sessions was he said to envision your child one day giving a TED Talk on the top five values that they they learned from their parents. What are the top five values that they're going to actually take with them and give them that TED Talk one day to whoever it may be? Things Whenever you take on something big or something long-term big, I should say, it comes in waves, you know, like you get into a certain pattern and then there's always going to be like, I mean, Shana, you can relate to this during test season or during when you have to hand in a paper where things get a lot more intense. And I think that preparing your family for that and they know, you know, that when I had my big exam coming up, it was ATT after the test and we had a list and we kept it. Is this something that has to be dealt with now or is this ATT? And then everybody chose something they want to do with mommy for after the test, you know? So like we recognize that this is going to be over and it's going to be stressful till we get there, but it's going to like, when it's over, I'll be back. You know, it's not, it's not going to be forever. Yeah. That's a really, yes. that's a really important that point. Is important. Is that, it's also that the that kids know. And I like what you said about the calendar earlier, you know, when you have a family calendar and the kids know what to expect, it's much easier to, make these adjustments when sometimes mommy's not available because they know what to expect. And that really can make a big difference. Now, this is more of a a current conversation, but you each have a very unique contribution to the world. Um, Even though they're, well, they're, they're not that different. There's a lot of overlap, but specifically where they're similar is that historically they've been more associated for the most part with men, right? You have people used to go to rabbis for whatever halachic guidance they needed people, even in in the field of law, there are more women now, but, you know, historically it has been more of a a man's kind of work. So um, can you talk about your experience taking on a role or roles that um, are, or have been seen as unconventional um, for Orthodox Jewish women? Uh, Shady, did you want to go ahead first? Yeah, that is very topical at the moment. And, you know, I always had an interest in women's issues and I read a message that really resonated with me. It's in the book Toward a Meaningful Life by Rabbi Simon Jacobson. And he quotes the Lubavitcher Rebbe and he says, the Rebbe said, after so many years of male dominance, we're standing at the threshold of a true feminine era. We've seen the resurgence of feminine energy and the power of the serene. It is now time for woman to rise to her true prominence and the entire world will recognize the harmony between men and women. And I really feel that happening quite literally all around us. I feel like saying amen. 
And it just stays with me. And it's so true. It is so true. So Rifki, yeah, what so, can you share with us? So, Amy, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and I, I have to say that I think that I didn't, when I decided to go back to studying, I mean, when I decided to make this decision, it, I didn't do it lightly. Like I said, it was a, it was like, a, it was a slow process. Like I knew one day I wanted to do it. And then as it became more realistic, you know, I had to have some like serious discussions. And one of the reasons why it was such a, I was so hesitant is because it's so misunderstood. People um, often think that we're trying to replace Rabbanim. People think that we're getting smicha. People think all kinds of like misconstrued notions of what actually a Yoetzev is, you know? So if, if I want to put it in like a very simplistic form, um, and maybe my colleagues wouldn't be thrilled with the way I defined it, but if you would think about it as like a overly qualified college teacher, what I mean by that is that women have always learned with women, you know, I mean, thousands of years ago as well, you know, as a Jewish girl prepared for her wedding, she studied with her, with her mother, or she studied with her tanda, or she studied with whoever was, you know, the woman in her life she studied with. So, and, and, and hopefully kept in touch with her as well. And there were, I'm saying formal education for women is relatively new, so to speak, but there were always learned women and wise women that others, they sought out their counsel. So again, it, it is revolutionary in this regard that it's being formalized, but it's something that we're bringing back to its rightful place. So I sort of feel like the voice of women in halacha, in, a, in an area of halacha that's so integral to who we are as Jewish women, it's high time that we were given the skills and the know-how so that when women need somebody to talk to, they can receive what's duly theirs. And of course, also to know your limitations. When I, I, I send more women to Rabbanim in the last two years than, than I ever had, but with, with, with tools, ask the rub this. This is your concern. Suggest perhaps this might be an option. Yes, call him back. You know, a lot of handholding, a lot of encouraging, a lot of giving them the, the information that they weren't even aware of that it's there. You know, I, I do think that the world is asking for something like this. And I feel so blessed, you know, to be a part of, of being able to provide that in my small way. Wow. Risky, thank you. It is high time. And we are blessed to have you take on this role. So we have discussed challenges, but we wanted to know if there's any specific challenge you want to share with us that you, you have overcome and whether any lessons you have learned that have taught you more about yourself or about change. Because when I was starting this out, like I knew I was in over my head because like I said, I knew that I didn't have the skills um, that I really needed. And so I actually uh, spoke to my younger brother, who was at that point finishing law school. So he came from like a yeshiva background. And for various reasons, he opted to go on to law school. Um, you know, but obviously he was coming in ill-equipped, you know, with the, the even basics, like, you know, like a basics English, he hadn't really acquired and he got himself into law school and he was going to have to figure out how to do it. And he did it and he did it really well. So I remember speaking to him and I'm like, okay, how am I doing this? And he said something that was so simple, but that I leaned in on and it was trust the process, set yourself up a system and trust the process and don't lose sight of that. 
And I remember just realizing that it was going to feel extremely overwhelming. And then you were going to review it. And some of the pieces were going to fall into place. And then you were going to review it again and a little bit further. And as you got closer and closer to the point where you're going to be tested on it, if you trusted the process and you did your due diligence, it was going to work out. And I, I had to remind myself that because some moments I was so overwhelmed. What was coming so easily and naturally to some of my classmates took so much effort on my part. But I also, I had seen success. I had seen pieces of success. It was such a powerful lesson, like set up a system and lean into that system and the system will work for you, you know? So, and I, and I realized that you could apply that in all areas of your life, in different parts right. of your household right. that are challenging and something you're trying to do with your child, like you have to invest in a system and then lean into it and trust that the process will work, you know? Yeah. And how yeah. it always yeah. seems impossible yeah. until it's done. There's like that quote. It always feels impossible until it's done. And then you look back and you say, okay, well, now I get it. Once, you know, once you cross over to the other side. Shaney. Well, this isn't easy for me to talk about. I've had a blessed life. I had the most wonderful parents who showered me with love and told me that I was wonderful and smart. And even if I didn't believe them all the time, it gave me an innate confidence. And then I was fortunate enough to marry a wonderful man, Chaim, who supported everything that I did. And he was just so proud when I achieved any milestone, large or small. We had seven beautiful children who really are smart and beautiful and wonderful. And they give us endless nachas. And five years ago, Chaim suddenly passed and my world came crashing down and I had to figure out how to keep going. And for a long time, I was on autopilot. And when I slowly emerged from the fog of shock, I knew that it was my choice to either drown in the pain or live with the pain. And every day I choose to live. I actually have no words because I know how deeply challenging this has been because Shaney's husband is my uncle, Chaim, and we were very, very close and he is sorely missed. And I watched Shaney. This is another way in how Shaney is so inspiring through this challenge how strong and, and what a brave face you put on for your children, for my grandparents, for your in-laws, um, how you continue to take care of everybody, how you pushed forward. And even now as studying and in, in that Chaim, and you know how proud he would be. I'm sure I know that he is a big part of what made you decide to actually pick yourself up and continue and to do what you're doing is due to him and his legacy and your relationship and the father and the wife and the uncle and the big family man that he was. So thank you for sharing this because I also think it gives many others who are listening hope who have their own challenges and losses in life that it is possible to do something, to actually not get stuck in the pain, but to actually take the pain and try and make something of your life. And move forward with it. Yes. So thank you for sharing. It's very powerful and meaningful. I, I didn't know him personally, but I've heard so much about him. We did an episode in his memory last year 
we had a long conversation about how incredible he was and his legacy continues to live on in your children and grandchildren. Riff Guy, I think I speak for both of us when I say that we're so incredibly inspired and blown away by um, what you have accomplished, um, Shaney Rifke. I think that to us, you um, emulate the definition of success, but we want to know from you, um, what does success mean to you? So this was actually another one of the more difficult questions for me. Um, and so I think on a kind of micro level, what success would look like, if I could like quiet that inner perfectionist and just be more present, you know, and just live in the moment more and be grateful for the here and the now. And I think that if I can do that internally, it would influence everything around me. And to me, that would be success way more than a perfect tablescape and way more than whatever it might be. And on a, and on a larger level, you know, and a sort of ma- um, macro level, I think success would look like, you know, if we can just stay focused and get ourselves and get the world to a place where, you know, everything that I've studied in the laws of the Chotmida would be obsolete because, you know, Chassidus teaches us that in the times of Mashiach, the Chotnida will no longer apply. It was as a result of the sin of the tree of knowledge. And we're still, you know, picking picking up the mess. But so that would be in a larger success. Janey? For me, success comes in two stages. And the first one would be to not listen to the voices trying to hold you back. You know, both the voices in your head the naysayers, I've learned that there's nothing that we can't do if we set our minds to it. And in my case, I saw a need and felt that I needed to do more. So I told myself that I could only try and that I would never regret trying, but I would definitely regret not trying. And you know the saying, the only thing to fear is fear itself, and it's true. Don't let anything stop you from reaching your goal. And then the second stage would be, if you can take your achievement and make a positive difference in someone's life. And, you know, we can take a step back and say, no, I won't get involved. It's all too hard and overwhelming. But when you know that you've played a role in helping someone turn their life around for the better, that's success. And we're here on this earth for a very short time, and we can leave it a slightly better place than how we found it. I mean, I can't imagine that anybody listening doesn't feel inspired on some level to reach a little farther and do a little more. I certainly am. We always trust the timing of our episodes too, because these are the two women that we need for ourselves and for our listeners to be inspired for Rosh Hashanah, um, to renew, to take new steps, to know that Hashem has given us the gift to be able to do that and to be able to be the best versions of ourselves. Thank you so much for being a part of From the Inside Out.